we were flying over enemy territory very low, very fast, in order to drop aid to these people that were sitting trapped on a mountain. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anyone to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody to left. Boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to Life on the Line. I recently spoke with Janine Faber. At the time of recording, May 2018, Janine was an Australian Army photographer and videographer. Since then, she has discharged and is now part-time in the Army Reserves. We spoke about Janine's experiences at home and abroad with the Army and military service through the camera lens. I'm Alex Lloyd in Canberra today in the home of Janine Faber. Janine, thanks for coming on Life on the Line. Thank you, Alex. Pleased to be here. Janine, where did you grow up? That's um, a hard question, that one, because I actually moved around a lot as a child. I was born in Melbourne, moved around a lot from country Victoria to outback Queensland, Canberra when I was a child for a year or two, and eventually ended up back in Melbourne as a mid-teens and did my senior high school there. As you're darting around from place to place, what kind of hobbies or interests did you have as a child? Uh, I was a bit of a tomboy. I liked playing outside a lot as a kid and I think that um, tomboy thing has stuck with me through to my 40s. Did you have any military history up the family tree? Got a big military history in our family tree, but none really directly except for my grandparents and my uncle was in the Navy, my two cousins in the Navy, and in fact they weren't very happy when I joined the army. <laughs> they, they, they tried to convince me that Navy was the, was the better service and I couldn't imagine keeping my uniform so clean. So I thought army was a better fit. Or their experiences in the forces like? Well, my, my cousins were in just for a few years. My, my uncle went to Vietnam. My grandparents were in the army as well, but I don't know a lot about their history. My grandmother was um, Iraq. Then further back down the line, my mum's done all our family history. We have quite a number of family members that were in World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Borneo, you know, Malaya. So it's spread all, all over, over the map. And, and when you look at when you look at going back further back, there's actually quite a number of our family are listed on the war memorial wall there. Do you remember when you first became interested in the military? I was actually in a community band and I met someone who was in the Army Reserve and they said, oh, you can play music in the Army as well. And I went, oh, really? You know, that seemed a bit foreign to me and a bit weird. And so that is how I really got interested. That was the moment. It wasn't really because of my family or anything like that. So you joined up as a muso? Yes, I know. <laughs> what were you playing? Uh, so I played clarinet and saxophone, not particularly well, but it was well enough for me to join up and have a go. And uh, over the years, I progressively got a bit better. And yeah, so it was, it was interesting actually joining the 
reserve band. It was in Melbourne and I just did it as a hobby. It was just a bit of fun. And then I'd only been there a couple of, you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of progressive weeks. And then they said, oh, well, you better, you better come along and sign up the paperwork and sign on the dotted line. And I'm like, oh, okay, no worries. And they asked for my bank account details and I didn't know why, because I didn't realise you actually got paid. <laughs> so, so it was a little bit, um, it was an eye opener. <laughs> So you sort of stumble into it. When you get past those initial stumbles, how is it actually marching and playing an instrument at the same time? Yeah, it's not as hard as it sounds because you're just walking in time to music. You know, it so, sounds hard to me. Yeah, it's well, you know, girls can multitask. So. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Any particularly memorable concerts or shows or marches? In the reserves, we did a few really good concerts down in Melbourne. You know, we appeared on the Footy Show, for example. That was that was an experience. You know, getting to be behind the scenes. You know, the AFL Footy Show. I'm talking about. We did a lot of, a lot of concerts, public concerts for fundraisers, march out parades, things like that. So Anzac Day was always a big day. We loved Anzac Day. What was your full time job? I worked at the Herald Sun in digital imaging. My job there was basically working with the photographers with photos and that's where my passion for photography really started to come out. I did it as a hobby as well at the same time. So what prompted you to go full-time? I was a shift worker at the Herald so I found it was quite exhausting working shift hours and I wanted to try something different. I was starting to get bored with it. I knew that um, they were looking for full-time musicians in the band call and so I just transferred across and it was quite an easy quick process in fact I had to try and for once the wheels of the army moved really quickly and I had to slow them down. Yeah and then I, my first posting was direct to Brisbane band. So what prompted you to change to photographer and videographer? Photography was always my first passion. Once I got into it, it became more and more prominent in my hobbies and then I wanted to make it more of a career. So I studied photography in Brisbane part-time while I was working in the band, all darkroom work. So I learnt on film and that was really good grounding for being a solid photographer, I think. And it was then that I started to look at transferring across to public affairs in the army and becoming an army photographer and it took quite a few years because it was so competitive such a competitive field to be a photographer in the army now there's both home and away aspects to your role let's talk domestically first let's ask the obvious what are the roles and responsibilities of a military photographer so our primary role i mean we're public affairs and that we need to distinguish that from media so we're not... Yeah, can you explain the difference for me? You'll have your newspaper photographers who work for News Limited or Fairfax and the like, and they, of course they want to get their story and their photos that tell that story, whereas we, being public affairs, we need to put a little bit of polish in into it into, in, to sell our story and to sell the good side of our story. It's not about hiding things necessarily, but we are about wanting to make sure that we showcase the good work that our soldiers do on the ground. And actually when I was at Joint Public Affairs Unit, it's a joint unit, so by its nature it meant we worked in all three services. Um, you know, I might be working for the Navy one day, the Air Force another. So it was really good experience for that. You got to see pretty much the best that Defence has of their different people, roles, assets, platforms. You get to see it all and showcase it and tell the stories. So let's take a random exercise out bush. So you're set out there and you'd have a specific goal or criteria of photos you're trying to reach. You've got a mission brief essentially and what you want to get out of the photography. So how much freedom do you have to execute that brief and how much is more prescriptive when in photos of XYZ? Um, we have a fair bit of freedom. We get briefed to go and do 
tell a story of soldiers out in the field doing their job. And to the soldiers, they often think that they've got a very boring role. They say, oh, I'm just a driver or I'm just a medic. And I hate that. I hate that when they say they're just something because they're downplaying what their job is. Absolutely. And to me, it's very important to say to them, no, you're not just a driver. You're a driver in the army. You're a driver that gets to go overseas. You know, your civilian mates from school don't get to say that. So they never say you're just anything. And it's funny we talk about that because only about two weeks ago, I bumped into a young soldier that apparently I'd said that to a couple of years ago. And he brought it up with me the other week and he said, oh, you told me off once for saying that I was just a driver. I've never forgotten that. I try not to say that again because, yeah, it's, I do know I, what I do is important. That's really special. Mm-hmm. You made an impact like that. So we've got uh, quite a collage of photos sprawled before us and listeners will have photos of all of this on our social media and website. So go and check it out. Talk me through some of the domestic-based photos um, that grab your eye from exercises or parades or some of our exercises you know the big ones I'm thinking of would be like talisman saber and they're pretty good because you get to work with other nations you're not just working with Australian soldiers and that one involves you know like in this case I was down on the uh, mortar line with the with the Marines at Townsend Island out near Rockhampton, getting right there in the in the line there and seeing how they do business compared to how our soldiers might do business. It's not really that much different from my untrained eye, but I found it very interesting to to work in with with them. You know, sometimes when you work with other nations, your Malaysian or Singapore counterparts in that environment, even though it's on domestic soil, it's really good to get that cultural mix. This is um, what I think is a really fascinating aspect of your job in that the driver you meet and all the people you meet along the way, they've got their specific job and they might progress and move on to another role, but they've always got a focus on what they're doing essentially. Mm -hmm. Whereas you get to canvas the entire array of our defense forces. You get to interact with overseas forces as well, as you've alluded to. So you get to see the whole breadth of what our military does and so what all these jobs are about and how it all works together as this great big machine. And you're looking at it through the critical lens of, and the beautiful lens of a camera, getting to analyze and deep dive. It's a pretty good privilege to have this big picture perspective of our military. Yeah, it is a privilege. And I do say a lot to people that I have the best job in the world, you know, because I get to take photos. Like I get paid to do my hobbies, basically. First I was a muso and now I'm a photographer. You're living the dream, yes. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, like I get to do some pretty, pretty fun stuff. You know, a memorable job was only about a year or two ago. I was um, tasked to photograph the commandos doing an airdrop off Manly. And so we're in the back of the C-130, the Hercules, and... I was strapped into the ramp, sitting perched on the edge of the ramp, and it was exhilarating, you know, flying along just above the sea there and just off, and you could see the coastline of Sydney. And the guys were doing their exercises, practicing their water jumps, over water jumps. And yeah, I, I found that, you know, a lot of fun and trying to make sure I nailed the photo. You have to have, you have to be really confident in yourself that your settings are right, that you can nail it. You know, you, can, you can't mess around looking at the back of the camera, trying to work out the camera. You have to actually nail it. Yeah, so it was, it was exciting to sit there on the, on the edge and just watch all this, you know, these guys, you know, launching out the back. Now for overseas deployments, you've got that public relations aspect to your role, but your art I think also has a greater significance in that you're contributing to the historical photographic record of overseas deployments, operations, war. Just how close to the front line, as it were, do you get? 
Sometimes you can get pretty close. It depends on your, on your deployment. I mean, obviously, people think frontline, they think Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, I've been to both places, Afghanistan. I didn't go to the frontliners in the traditional sense that people think, you know, like I wasn't on foot patrol, although there are some other amazing photographers within my trade and also within the other services that have literally foot patrolled out there. They've got some amazing stories too. So for me, I've been outside the wire, yes, in vehicle patrols. I've dismounted once or twice, but and I've been on forward operating bases. I've not personally, my job, been required to go out on a foot patrol with the soldiers. I think the scariest thing for me in terms of a out in the war zone was when I was doing an airdrop. I was part of an airdrop in um, Iraq and it was for a humanitarian aid mission into Mount Sinjar in the northern Iraq. There were th- some 30,000 Yazidi people, displaced people that were trapped on top of the mountain trying to escape at the ISIS. And so we were tasked to go with a C-130, fly in and drop something like 10 tonne or so of aid, of biscuits, water, blankets, the like, and um, it was airdropped into them. And so that meant we were flying through the night, through the dark of the night, lights out. I was really focused at the time. I had to get my job done. I had, for a photographer, you're all about the imagery. You know, I was on video for that particular job, although on the way I did do a couple of stills. And it was all about making sure I had that camera rolling. And so I was very focused. You know, we came in, we flew in. It was quite a little bit scary for me because I've never experienced tactical flying to that level before. And we had to fly in quite low and fast and it was pitch black and I was filming through night vision. So it was all very surreal. I had the headphones on so I could hear the air crew. And then we got the one minute to drop call. The lights came on and the ramp went down and the rush of air coming in and then the pallets went out. And... The pallets were gone in like less than three seconds. It was all over and done with. So it was this massive build-up to get to that point. And then it was over in three seconds. And then the plane just accelerated out of there as quick as it could and and got us back out into a safe zone. And and we had to just sit in and just wait for the all clear. And then we'd take off our body armour and the like. And the whole time I was just thinking, oh, I hope I got the shot. I hope I got the shot. I really wasn't thinking at the time about the situation we're in until I got back and people started talking about it. And I'm going, yeah, it was a pretty dangerous situation to be in. You know, we were flying over enemy territory very low, very fast in order to drop aid to these people that were sitting trapped on a mountain. And all I cared about was making sure I had that shot. It wasn't for another half an hour before I was allowed to actually fire up the computer and download the imagery that I could just be reassured that... You got the shot. That I got it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it was sent out as soon as we got back. So it was another six-hour flight, I think it was. I can't remember exactly. Back to um, base in um, El Minhad. And priority one was basically getting it sent back to Australia for the media to run because it was big news back in Australia. It was the first time in in a decade or so that a humanitarian airdrop had of that nature had occurred. And so it was obviously quite big news. You're part of this machine doing this incredible operation and people say don't judge a book by its cover, but you're providing the proverbial book cover of that operation to communicate it to the public that we are making a difference here. This is what our taxpayers' dollars are going to. This is what we as a nation are morally and ethically contributing towards. It is an aspect to my job that a lot of the ground troops don't quite sometimes grasp is that one of the big reasons we have to tell their story is to enable them to get the support from the public and also therefore government support which therefore gives them funding which therefore gives them the latest bit of kit to help them do their job in the field and it's a very roundabout way to get there but you know trying to explain that without 
sounding self-righteous to some of the troops. Some of the young guys that just don't want to be in a photo because they're afraid they have to pay a slab of beer at the boozer the next night, you know, because there's a bit of a, a thing. Pegging down the glory hunters. Yeah. And, and they, they're it's basically... it's not about individual glorification. It's not. It's exactly what you described. That's right. Yeah. And you're essentially using art to pay for them to have better night vision goggles or good med kits or rat packs or... Yeah, I like to think so. Yes. Yeah. So we've got a few photos in front of us, Janine. Talk me through what they are and the stories behind them. Yeah, it's a bit hard to pick out any just one or two. Quite a few memorable photos and stories behind them. But, you know, like this one, for example, it's of an um, aerial shot of a helicopter and it's taken from one Black Hawk to the other. Bird's eye view. Bird's eye view, looking directly down on top of the vortex of the blades. And it was a concept that the commander over there in in Timor had in his mind for a book cover, and he wanted to get a shot from the top. So he arranged for me to to go out to the aviation regiment there and with 5th Aviation Regiment. And thankfully, you know, I'd been working with them quite a fair bit by that point because I'd been in Timor for a while, and they were quite happy to strap me into the bottom of their helicopter of their Black Hawk and so I was in a um, strapped in lying on the floor of one Black Hawk with my torso half hanging out out the door so that I could lean out as far as I could and aim to get the shot and the idea was that you know so I was on comms with the with the air crew and I was directing them exactly where I needed them to position our helicopter in relation to the one below I just basically kept firing and changing my settings to make sure I got that beautiful blur in the blades and kept firing and the only thing that I wanted to do to improve the shot is I wanted to do the shot over water and have the water coming up but safety considerations wouldn't allow us to do that they said no no we'll do it over land because water is going to make much difference when you're dangling underneath a black hole well that's what i said i said i think either way there's you know you've got other problems (laughs) (laughs) that'll be be the least of my problems but no it was because of the type of harness i had to be strapped into meant that i wouldn't be able to quick release out of it if we did go down Talk me through the next one. So this photo I'm looking at now is of a um, diver, a Navy diver in Brisbane, actually. And he's um, he's clearing the pylons below the bridges in the river, the Brisbane River. And the reason he's doing that is straight after the Queensland floods in um, 2011. Yeah, they were unfortunately having to go down and clear the pylons because there was um, a lot of rubbish and debris down there, like car bodies and, and shipping containers and the like had been swept down during the floods. And so so they went down to clear the river. Unfortunately, also, I believe they were looking for to make sure there were no human remains down there too. So it wasn't a very pleasant job for them, but they all got on with it, got on with the job. And, and, and so these are the sort of quiet achiever stories that we tell is, is showing that, you know, people don't realise that that's the sort of stuff that has to be done and because they had to make sure that bridge wasn't going to collapse because of a shipping container bashing up against it. So that was a pretty good experience going out there with them and, and photographing them. That's obviously quite confronting for the diver, but you're there too documenting the moment. How did that make you feel? It's um, Again, it comes back to focusing through the lens and I tend to distance myself when I'm taking photos. I tend to make sure that I get the shot I need to get and not worry too much what's going on. Because if you get too emotional at the time about it, it makes it much harder to get your shot. The guys, thankfully, while I was there, didn't find anything terrible. And so I didn't experience anything in that regard. But there are other times like um, 
you know, for me, probably the hardest jobs I have to deal with would be things like funerals and ramp ceremonies. And when you're filming and photographing ramp ceremonies and, and funerals of soldiers that have been killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, then you're having to relive it a little bit because you're having to then edit it later. You're not just doing it there. Then later you're listening to it all over again. So is the editing room more confronting than Sometimes the because you're sort of taking a breath and watching it and then you're having to re-listen and listen and listen. Like I did two funerals on video last year close together and like only a matter of a week or two apart. So I went from one straight to the next and it was of two young soldiers that had died in totally separate unrelated training accidents and it was tragic. It was really, really sad and to listen, you know, to their stories of their parents and their their family members reciting stories about that particular soldier through your headphones when you're editing when you've already heard it once and then you've got to hear it again and then you've got to edit it again and it, it can get quite confronting after a while and can get a bit, um, yeah, it's, it's very sad. I can relate to that somewhat. I filmed the funeral of a war veteran before as well, though thankfully in that case, elderly gentleman of World War II in his 90s, so a great way to bow out. Yes, yeah. But I was so focused on getting some good artistic shots to capture a beautiful memory of that funeral and I'm listening just about the sound quality and I'm concerned about the echo as the Rev delivers the sermon and I um, wasn't actually paying attention or digesting the words. It was only when I was going through the material afterwards that it was affected me more because I knew him when he was alive, of course, and had recorded his story. So I do, I do relate to that, actually. You can just um, shut it down. It's not a deliberate closing down the bulkheads kind of scenario. You're just so focused on the execution of your function and then the emotion just seeps in later. When we're filming and photographing funerals, we're not doing it for anyone really but the family. The family are offered, you know, do you want to have a video? It sounds strange, yeah, I know, but to a video of your family member's funeral because they like to show it sometimes to other people that couldn't make it. And so that's something they get often. Most times I understand they, they take up that option. The hardest one I had was a country regional funeral. As the casket was going down in the ground, the grandma was starting to cry and she was talking, you know, had a hand on the casket saying, this shouldn't be you, this shouldn't be you. And she's saying all these things. And it occurred to me I was the only person that could hear it because I had a directional mic on my camera. She was so quiet because when I took my headphones off, no one else could hear her. But because my microphone was so directional, I could hear it really clearly. And I just broke down then and there. It was just very, very difficult to have those sort of moments where you feel like you're imposing on someone's personal space, like it's their their moment. You don't want to disrupt or get in the way of their grief. That's right. Yeah. And thankfully, I was back a distance and... um, you know, and I just stepped away and just composed myself and then got back on with the job. But it is those sort of moments that make you realise that what we do is very important. It's more than just taking pretty pictures. There are a couple of happy pretty pictures there, though. I'm looking at one of uh, detection dog Sabi. Oh, Sabi. Most people know of her story where she was lost in Afghanistan for a period of time and then found and she came home. So it's a really good news story. I've got a great shot of her running through the grass and that shot was actually taken at Quarantine Centre in Sydney. So that was my very first official job as an army photographer. What a privilege. And I was so excited. And my boss at the time, he knew I was a massive animal lover, particularly for dogs. And he just said, I'm giving you this job. You better get it right because everyone's watching this job. And um, I'm like, yes, I want it. And I got a great shot taken with Sabi. So after I finished the, the shoot, her handler, Sergeant D, said, oh, do you want a photo with her? I'll take a photo for you. So I got a great shot with her as well. Anyway, a couple of years later, I think it was, I happened to be travelling through Sydney Airport 
I went into the bookstore and I'm strolling along the bookshelf and there's my photo sitting up on the bookshelf. And I was like, oh my God, I recognize that shot. And it was actually the front cover of the book that um, was written about her. And there's my picture. Unfortunately, the credit's to Department of Defense and not Janine Faber, but you know. (laughs) On a more serious note, there is a wonderful photo there in regards to MH370. The whole world heard the news about MH370 going missing, the Malaysian Airlines over the southern Indian Ocean was the assumption. And so Australia was very heavily involved. The Australian Defence Force was heavily involved in the search and for the airline. And so we were flowing really short notice. A public affairs team were flown over to Perth, based out of there for a couple of weeks. We were basically to just film the search and be on the aircraft and do some stories, the behind the scenes type stories. So I'm looking at a shot um, I took on an aircraft of an air crewman looking out the porthole window over the water and um, just doing the search. That's what they did for hours. They just kept scanning that ocean. There's apparently a technique to it where they have to look scan from right to left instead of the normal left to right, which is your natural in- way to scan. So it tricks your eyes to look for more detail. It, it makes it forces you to slow down and look for detail in the in the surface. But we were skimming very low over the surface of the ocean in our search zone, so it's actually very bumpy, very cold, and very air sickening. So it was quite interesting. It was in the Orion aircraft, so it's very small space as well. We did that for a few hours and then we had to um, come off station and fly back to base because quite a long distance away. Did it again for a couple of days in a row. And The porthole provides this natural vignette on the photo and I think it really captures what the mood must have been like on that flight. Can you talk to me a bit more about the atmosphere back during that search? Yeah, so during the actual search, once they were on station, everyone was game on. It was very focused. Admittedly, I did a lot of my staged shots leading up to and after because you cannot interrupt them while they're actually searching. And so you don't want to be using a flash or clicking away with your camera next to them or distracting them at all from the job they've got to do. And so sometimes, and that's actually one of the key differences with PR and, and media is that with PR, we make allowances to do maybe a stage shot ahead of the actual moment. You need to get the message out to the public without sacrificing the actual execution of the task. That's exactly right. But when they're on station, it's basically every available eye, including mine, you know, we were all looking out the windows. If there was a porthole available, you were searching and you had to look and not to be afraid to say, oh, I think I saw something. And if it ended up being just a white cap of a wave, so be it. No one was worried about that. You still had to speak up if you thought you saw something. And they would mark it with their marker boys and go back and have another look. Tell me about the last photo. A photo of a very beautiful Afghan girl. I took it in Afghanistan um, during my six-month deployment there. It was taken in Karga out near just outside of Kabul at the officer academy there. So she's a ANA officer, Afghan National Army officer. She was an officer cadet training. Um, so one of the first female officer cadets in training. And that was the point of my story at the time. I was doing video and stills. That was one where I was doing both. We were telling the story of women in the Afghan National Army now being involved in their military and having a leadership role and everything. It was a very important story to tell. But of course, knowing their cultural issues that they've had in the past and still have, I made a point of explaining to them through the interpreter, look, your photos and video will be published 
publicly. So if you don't want to have your face on social media, for example, you know, let me know and I won't film you, I won't photograph you. And I was really strong about that because I wanted to protect them as well because I know that there are cultural issues with regards to that. So some of them covered up their faces but were happy for me to still film them but with their face covered. Whereas others were like, no, we're happy. We're quite proud of what we do and we want you to show what we do. And this particular girl came up and asked for a photo to be taken. I loved it, you know, and this particular shot, she's just staring straight down the lens of the camera, big smile. She's so proud of her role and what she's doing for her country. And then we use that photo on social media. And then as a result of that, though, unfortunately, she got death threats from her family members, extended family members. So her immediate family were proud of her and happy, but then she... You know, apparently there was an uncle or someone in the family who were just totally against the fact that she was in the army and this happened and so then she was getting death threats and then she had to be pulled from training and I felt responsible for that. That was my photo, yet we made it very clear. And my understanding is that she's fine. There's no, you know, nothing further from that and she eventually came back to training but it was just there was a moment for a while there that, yeah, I thought I'd done something really dreadful even though I'd made a point of being very careful with them and saying, you know, Whatever I take of you, you know, let me know. If you can't be published, tell me now. She was so proud of her role. And, and to me, that's what that photo is all about, is why we actually go to places like Afghanistan. It's because of people like her. And to me, that's very important. I think you should be proud of that photo. And I don't think you should have any qualms or regrets about taking it. She clearly understood potential consequences of that. And she chose to own it as a point of strength and making a stand how you have enabled her to do that and that is essential to make this progression that we're trying to help. I appreciate you saying that. (laughs) I'm glad she's proud. I'm glad she owned it and I'm glad you took it and got it out there. So stand by yourself for your work there. Thankfully, Janine, you're not in the thick of a firefight, but you're trying to capture the essence of military life, all its highs and lows, through your camera lens. Through all you've witnessed and your interactions with our people on the ground, overseas troops, locals, and the breadth of service that we've covered today with your photography and videography, what lessons or takeaways in military life do you have for us? I think the biggest thing for me is everyone in defence has a story. And everyone has very personal, different experiences of what they go through. You know, I've been around for a long time, so to speak, some 20 plus years in the army. And I've seen a massive change in that time from when I first joined as a reservist, a very naive 20 year old. And, you know, now I'm in my mid 40s and and out there seeing, seeing a lot of soldiers on the ground, a lot of sailors, airmen, you know, I've photographed them all. And they all have different things to share different stories and it doesn't matter if they're just a truck driver they still have their own take on what their experience is and I don't think you can take anyone for granted so it's very important to to remember that there is individual aspects to to military life and different experiences. You've also taken your skills to the private sector and established your own photography business tell me about that. Uh, Yeah, so I have recently, very recently started my own personal business in a part-time capacity. It's very difficult because I'm so busy with my army photography job to fit it in, but it's good because I'm I'm working on um, skills that I don't use in my daytime job. I'm doing a lot more portraits of families and things like that, which I'm really enjoying. You don't do many couples photos on base? No, (laughs) no, not really. (laughs) No. It's good to just have fun with the camera and not be on a task, if that makes sense. Absolutely. But the reason, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm doing that is with a view to life after army. You know, I'm, I'm not getting any younger and I know that 
The travel's starting to wear, you know, get a bit tiring. I travel so frequently. I'm away from home a lot. It's getting tough. And so I think it's time I started to put the passport away occasionally and spend more time at home. And this is part of my goal is to be able to be in a position to be able to run my own business. Well, it's great. Start the side hustle and then plan for the future. Talk to me about the difficulty of having to travel so much and be constantly away from home through this role. You have to go everywhere. And I mean, how much notice do you get and what kind of strain does that put on the family? Thankfully, it's not too strained in my family situation. Um, there's just my husband and myself. So he's pretty supportive. In fact, he's very supportive. And um, I think it's because he gets control of the remote control when, I get, when I'm away. <laughs> uh, he always has a lovely bunch of flowers waiting for me when I get home. So that's very nice. But the short trips, short notice trips are very tough because if you've planned something for the weekend and then next thing something happens and like when I went over for Super Typhoon Haiyan after that in the Philippines, it was very short notice. It was a couple of days and we were gone and or not even. And um, I was the online team, 24 hours notice and we we're on a plane heading out. And then you're gone for a month and that's right on Christmas. And in fact, we didn't get back till I think the 23rd of December of that year. And we weren't even sure we were going to be home for Christmas. So Times like that can be very tough because you can't plan, but then other times, you know, you get lots of notice and you'll end up in Israel for the commemorative service of the Battle of Beersheba. You know, that's an amazing thing to be a part of, you know. So I wouldn't change anything, you know, but I am a bit of a travel bug. I love travelling. I do understand, though, that it's just (laughs) being away, being away so much can be a bit tiring. We'll be posting some of the photos we've talked about today and a few others on the Life on the Line social media and our website. But if people want to look up some of your other military work, Janine, where should they go to find it? My own website, actually. I have a page that's dedicated to my military portfolio. So janinefaber.com. And that's where they can also get in touch with you for the side hustle. Yes, correct. Yes, please. Yes. And mention Life on the Line and you get a discount. And what about your social media? Uh, So my social media handles are all at J9Fab, J9 being the numerical nine. Well, Janine, it's been lovely to chat. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Alex. That was my conversation with Janine Faber. Thanks go to Defence Media for organising the interview. If you have photography needs, be sure to look up Janine's website. Also look up Janine on social media and this podcast as well. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLPod. And don't forget our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Check out the website and on the homepage, hit the subscribe button. Where prompted, type in your email address and you'll get an email every time a new podcast is out with photos and more. Sign up to never miss an episode. You can listen to us in Apple Podcasts for Apple devices, and for either Apple or Android, you can listen to us in Overcast and TuneIn. At Life on the Line, we're proud to say that we're Australia's only veterans-focused podcast, and I say that because we're the only podcast that sit down with a military veteran each week and have a conversation with them about their life and their service, and that's this podcast's primary focus. However, there are other great Australian military podcasts that you should check out. If you're interested in military strategy, warfare, and asking the question, what is war, check out The Dead Prussian by Mick Cook. Also, only recently released to the public is The Warrior You podcast by Bram Connolly, former Australian Special Forces. The premise of the show is to explore all things human optimization, combat, leadership, and coffee.
Bram talks with a wide variety of experts in that field, including ex-Special Forces. So check out the Dead Prussian and the Warrior U podcast. And if you like either of them, let them know that you've found them through Life on the Line. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget... <laughs>